2: Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth. Today, we return to our ongoing series, The Follies of 1938. Last time out, we talked about Motion Picture's Greatest Year, the massive PR campaign that the studios banded together to launch in an effort to pull the film industry out of a great recession. One of the catalysts precipitating that major action was an ad that ran in The Hollywood Reporter on May 3rd, 1938. Wake up, Hollywood producers blared the headline of this sponsored editorial, which was penned by Harry Brandt on behalf of the Independent Theatre Owners Association. These were the guys who operated movie theatres that weren't owned by the studios, but who were nonetheless pretty much at the mercy of the collected studio's whims and self-serving policies. The ugly truth that the theatre owners took out this full-page ad in order to get the producers to wake up to that some of the decade's most major stars like Mae West, Marlena Dietrich, Greta Garbo, and Joan Crawford were by 1938, as Brandt put it, quote, poison at the box office. The problem wasn't with the stars themselves exactly, except insofar as that they couldn't stop their own appeal from turning stale. The problem was with the studios, who kept paying these stars enormous amounts of money, regardless of whether or not their movies earned that money back. And this wasn't an anomaly. This was literally business as usual in Hollywood. In the 1930s, and for a good 20 years afterwards, the studios controlled their on-camera talent by signing stars to long-term contracts, which usually virtually robbed the individual performer of asserting any kind of individual choice when it came to what movies they appeared in and when. These contracts made a star's entire public presence the property of the studio, which would determine what the performer looked like on or off camera, and manage how they presented themselves to the public. The studios paid dear sums for this control, and most performers were usually happy to give up these freedoms in exchange for the lavish lifestyles their contracts afforded them. But in this paid advertisement, in one of the industry's key trade papers, Brandt presented a not entirely unreasonable argument against this system. Brandt argued that these contracts forced studios to build vehicles around their expensive players, regardless of whether or not they continued to draw audiences. In 1938, theater owners could and did point to the failure of films like Angel and Bringing Up Baby and blame their highly paid stars, Marlena Dietrich and Katherine Hepburn, for not proving to be worth what had been invested in them. Essentially, the people who sold movie tickets to the public were slamming the people who paid for and made movies on the grounds that much of the narrative they had built up around their industry to obscure the industrial capitalist stuff like division of labor and profits was not only no longer successfully selling the industry's products, it was actually turning customers away. In any other industry, a full-page ad in a trade paper would have stayed within the industry. But because this was Hollywood, the Hollywood Reporter ad became major news, reported on by mainstream, non-industry, non-entertainment media. The actual ad was direct and to the point. It was all text, focused merely on the excessive salaries of the stars in question. But when other publications took up the box office poison accusation as news, They added visual information, like exclamation points and pictures of the stars in question dripping with jewels and furs. The message that was disseminated was that part of what the money paid for was glamour, a type of flashy, beyond-fantastic superficiality that was, with the Great Depression lingering on and World War II on the horizon, totally gauche and out of fashion.
1: This episode is brought to you by Mubi, the curated streaming service dedicated to elevating great cinema from around the globe. Every film on Mubi is hand-selected by real people who really love movies, so you get films from iconic directors, from emerging auteurs. There's always something new to discover. And coming up in May, here's something to discover. Gasoline Rainbow, the latest film from the Ross Brothers. They are the acclaimed directors behind another great film you might have seen called Bloody Nose Empty Pockets. Gasoline Rainbow is about five teens from inland Oregon who pile into a van with a busted taillight to get to a place they've never seen, the Pacific Coast. New York Magazine called it, quote, an ecstatic road trip movie, and that just about sums it up. Gasoline Rainbow opens in U.S. theaters May 10th, and then you can stream it exclusively on Mubi starting May 31st. Best of all, right now you can try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash YMRT. That's M-U-B-I dot slash YMRT for a whole month of great cinema for free. Take the ride.
2: Of all the stars branded as box office poison by Brandt, the one that's most interesting as a scapegoat for the turn away from excess, and also the struggle against the star contract system, is the one that today is probably the least known. But in 1938, Kay Francis was Warner Brothers' highest paid star. She debuted on screen in 1929, and by 1932, when she left Paramount to sign her first contract with Warner Brothers, Frances was one of Hollywood's biggest stars. That year, she appeared in her best film, Ernst Lubitsch's Trouble in Paradise, as a glamorous, madcap cosmetic company executive who's swindled by con couple Miriam Hopkins and Herbert Marshall. Frances' languid, hedonistic elegance is perfect for this film, and was usually interesting in other films, even when it was seemingly at odds with characters she played, like workaholic newspaper editors, or Lennon's Secretary. Unlike her sisters in box office poison, like Katherine Hepburn and Greta Garbo, no one ever confused Kay Francis with a great actress. Obviously, Kay Francis can't act, wrote film historian Jeanine Bassinger, and Bassinger is one of Francis' biggest fans. But according to the historian, Francis's allure was not her talent, but her presence. Frances was famous, even before she really became famous, for being a fashion plate, and most accounts of her career note that she wore clothes like no one else. But she also projected something that was uniquely of her time. And maybe that's why, of all the actresses singled out as poisonous, it was Kay's career that never really fully recovered. Join us, won't you, as we explore the life and poisoning of Kay Frances. Francis was born Catherine Gibbs in Oklahoma City in 1905 before Oklahoma was even a state. Her father was a schemer and her mother a wannabe actress, and they lived a transient life, putting in time in Los Angeles, Denver, and Salt Lake City before Kay was school-aged. Eventually, her mother left her father and took Kay with her on the vaudeville circuit. Some reports suggest mom and daughter were pretty badly off. The cutest of these reports has them subsisting on popcorn and water. Kay Francis kept coded diaries from the time she was a teenager through the end of her film career scrawling in business school shorthand on the pages of personal calendar books. She made note of what she did all day, who she had dinner with, and what happened after dinner. These diaries could be heartbreakingly honest. They were full of self-flagellation and accountings of both rapturous fun and morning-after consequences, including many, many abortions. In these diaries, Kay hinted that her mom had done what she had to do. Wink, wink to keep the residential hotel rent paid, and that this was a great shame for Kay, something she wanted to keep secret, but would sometimes accidentally blab about when she was beyond drunk. As a teenager in the silent era, Kay became obsessed with the movies, particularly those starring Pola Negri. Long into her own Hollywood career, Kay would remember what it was like to have a shitty, hand-to-mouth life, and to be transported by an image of decadent womanhood on the big screen. Her driving ambition was not to be a star so that she could similarly inspire other poor little girls. She wanted to be a star so she could make money, so that she wouldn't ever again be poor, and certainly never have to do what her mom apparently had to do, just to get by. At 16, Kay attended secretarial school and started taking temp jobs in New York City. She turned 17 in 1922, and that April, she lost her virginity. Soon she had a steady boyfriend and also started sleeping with women. She was beyond reckless when it came to sex. Starting with the time that she became sexually active, her diary recorded three abortions in the span of eight months. In December, she and the boyfriend, James Dwight Francis, married. On December 31st, in her diary, Kay concluded 1922 on a note of triumph. It was, she scrawled, My most wonderful year. On May 25th, 1924, Kay got her hair bobbed, and soon the first husband was lobbed off, too. She was a divorcee at 19, and 21, and 29. None of her three marriages got in the way of her constant bed-hopping, and all three were short-lived. In 1925, Kay Francis traveled to Paris, for the first of what would become semi-annual European sojourns. Moving through expat society circles, Kay was a sensation. She wore her hair short like a man's, no jewelry, no makeup save for lipstick. She had a beige outfit, a black outfit, a hat, and a black evening dress. And she rotated this scant wardrobe every day for two years and worked it. Everywhere she went, she seemed like the most stylish girl. But she also had nothing to live off of and by the time she returned to new york she had as she put it later found my capital was a certain amount of looks figure and youth there was only one thing to do she would become an actress 20 year old kay francis lived in a new york apartment with two other young women and carried on an on-again off-again affair with at least one of them each of the roommates was so popular that they required their own telephone line One of them joked that their apartment looked like the stock exchange. Every morning, her bootlegger would send up a tumbler of gin for breakfast. Walter Houston met Kay when they were cast in a play together, and he got her her first screen test in 1929. Kay had never had any reason for insecurity about the way she looked, so when she actually saw the test, she was shocked. My face was shiny and I looked like the devil, she said. Paramount didn't think so. They offered her a $300 a week contract with a five-week guarantee. She ended up staying with Paramount through the end of 1931, and during that span, she appeared in no less than 29 films, and became a darling of the fan and fashion magazines. This is how reporter Adela Rogers St. John articulated Kay's philosophy of life in the 1920s. K. Francis had decided, as young folks so often do, that the best way to beat life at its own game was never to take anything seriously, never to believe in anything, and then you couldn't be disillusioned. Never to build up any dreams, then you couldn't be rudely awakened. Never to throw your whole soul into the keeping of another human being, and then you couldn't be disappointed. Be a playgirl. That was the system. In other words, Kay Francis was a girl who embodied the flapper generation and this whole live fast because death is nigh vibe became part of Kay Francis's unique essence on screen. No actress before her arrival in Hollywood or in the 80 years since Kay Francis's heyday has ever been a Kay Francis type other than Kay Francis because there are a lot of things about her that most movie stars wouldn't want to emulate. She had a famous unignorable lisp. To the extent that most producers and directors took pity on her, and had scripts rewritten to minimize the R sounds. She was never exactly fresh-faced—in fact, she usually looked rather tired. There were rumors that she was secretly black and passing as white, although on screen from some angles, she looks notably Semitic. She was extraordinarily tall for her time—five foot nine, a full four inches taller than Joan Crawford, and an inch taller than Katherine Hepburn and she was slim, bordering on gawky. She had a lollipop body, a Betty Boop face on an olive oil frame. Costume designers loved her. The body types of a lot of silent and early sound stars ranged from childlike to voluptuous to, well, too voluptuous. And it was a challenge to dress someone as um, cherubic, as Clara Beau, in the clean lines of modish couture. Gin for Breakfast K was maybe the first major star with a clothes hanger-like body. And from the beginning, Paramount's publicity department used this to their advantage, working hard to brand Kay as the best-dressed woman in Hollywood. During the rare weeks of the early 1930s when there wasn't a Kay Francis film in theaters, there was surely at least a couple of magazines displaying her face or featuring her modeling fashion synergistic to her next film. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. I frequently have this experience in therapy where I tell my analyst something that is happening or happened with someone else, and they ask me how I feel about it, and then they ask me if I have told the person in question how I feel, and a lot of the time my answer is nope, because just telling the analyst is kind of enough. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. Everyone needs a sounding board. Just talking to a therapist about what's going on can make you feel better. Other times, a therapist can offer strategies or new ways to frame the difficulty you're having. Maybe you'll leave your session with action items that you can work on, or maybe just talking it through will give you the perspective you need to make changes. But therapy is a good first step to figuring that out. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash YMRT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash YMRT. Most of her movies were short, too short for Kay to even really develop a character, She'd make an unforgettable entrance, have some kind of trouble with a man, or more often several men, that gave excuses for several costume changes, several opportunities to waltz into rooms looking amazing, and then either order would be restored, or Kay and or her man would simply die. Once Kay Francis settled into her stardom, she basically played three types of roles. Heiresses and other moneyed women whose lives were devoted to good times, suffering women, and the woman-half of gender-flip parables, gals who got to, or had to, do things that were conventionally considered the province of men, like run a company with the assistance of a male secretary, as she does in Trouble in Paradise and Man Wanted. The frothier and more double entendre laid in the movie, the more fun Kay Francis is to watch in it. Nobody falls in love at first sight like her, although she was pretty good at quick turns into agony and tragedy, too. But when I think of her, I think of a woman who runs toward pleasure, even though she knows there's a price to pay for it later. The most literal example of this comes in One Way Passage, a brutally underseen Tay Garnett film set on an ocean liner, in which Kay's dying beauty falls in love with William Powell, a convicted murderer who will be transported to San Quentin as soon as the boat docks. Here's Kay getting her on-board diagnosis.
3: No more parties. No more cigarettes. No more dancing. And no more cocktails. You're cutting your months into weeks, your weeks into days. My days into hours. Is that it? It is. What you really mean, and you're too kind to say, is that if I stay in my stateroom, lie in bed, deny myself everything, even the the mildest diversion, I may live to arrive at that charming sanitarium.
0: You
2: state
3: it very cruelly. It's not a pretty picture, is it? All right, I'll do what you say funny how we cling to life even after it's worthless.
2: In the middle of the scene, she realizes that Powell, with whom she had been flirting on dry land, is on the boat too. She changes her mind.
3: Oh, no. No, I was wrong. I know now what I want. I want to crowd all the intense, beautiful happiness possible in what life I've got left. That's all living's for. If it's only for a few hours, I want to have it. I'm going to have it. All I could get my hands on. General, now, doctor, I am going
2: on deck. Goodbye. She's one of the great pre code stars because she can simultaneously come off as happily and unapologetically hedonistic, devoting to living a life free of consequence. And yet she seems smart and sympathetic enough that her bad behavior rarely marks her as fundamentally bad. And her sexual charisma is insane as it was in real life, although pre-code movies couldn't even begin to depict the kind of shenanigans Kay got up to off the clock. Here she is in a scene from one of her best films, Jewel Robbery. Her character, a baroness who falls for a master thief, William Powell, as he's robbing her, is talking about herself, but she might as well be describing the actress who plays her.
3: I'm not a fine woman. In my own eyes, I'm shallow and weak. Why? Because I go on leading a shallow and weak life, whereas with a little courage, I could break away from it. I have all the qualities to make quite a decent person, and what have I done with them? I fly about all day pursuing furs, jewels, excitement. I don't love. I don't even suffer. That is anything except boredom. In the morning, a cocktail. In the afternoon, a man. In the evening, Veranol. That, my dear Minister of State, is my picture of your Terry. Is it too high?
2: Jewel Robbery came out in 1932, which was, unquestionably, Kay Francis's best Hollywood year. It wasn't a great year for anyone else. Hollywood went into a major box office slump, which, given that the stock market bottomed out that summer, was no doubt in part a symptom of the nation's overall economic instability. But Kay Francis had signed a new contract with Warner Brothers. She was now making $2,000 a week, and the studio was determined to milk the most of their investment. She was in eight films, released in 1932. In addition to Man Wanted and Jewel Robbery, there was The False Madonna, Strangers in Love, Street of Women, Sinara, Tay Garnett's One-Way Passage, and, of course, Trouble in Paradise.
3: Oh, what do you think of that? A hundred thousand francs. You know, I hadn't the slightest idea. But, madame, you keep 100,000 francs in your safe at home? You think that's too much? No, not enough. In times like these, when everything is uncertain, every conservative person should have a substantial part of his fortune within arm's reach.
2: That sounds sensible. Kay delayed a honeymoon with her third husband, Kenneth McKenna, when she heard that Lubitsch wanted her. She was a cinephile, or the closest thing to one you could be as a busy working actress and also a drunk, And she knew that this movie wasn't like her other movies. This one was special. It's not just the best Kay Francis movie. It's probably the best of all of what we think of as pre-code movies, meaning movies which made the most of the then-lax regulations on depictions of sex immorality, turning degeneracy into high glamour. And it's in many ways the template for the modern madcap love triangle comedy. It was a hit in its time, and then for a long time forgotten, probably in part because of its pre codiness. It is absolutely Unmistakably, unapologetically, a movie about grown-ups having sex.
3: Madame Collet, if I were your father, which fortunately I am not, and you made any attempt to handle your own business affairs, I would give you a good spanking. What would you do if you were my secretary? The same thing. You're hired.
2: Kay Francis filed for divorce from her third husband in 1934, Her suit against him cited nagging, and soon thereafter, she fell into a rut of mediocre movies. She quickly tired of what she called new woman roles, like the one in Dr. Monica, in which she played, well, a doctor named Monica, a gynecologist who, as the trailer puts it, can help every woman except herself. She started telling journalists that she longed to do something essentially feminine. Now this may have been a certain type of spin, the type where an actress seems to be blaming the studio for putting her in roles that go against her own traditional values, to assure one demographic that the real Kay Francis was no crusading new woman, while at the same time, the very stating of that sentiment gives another demographic the impression that she's not afraid to assert her independence. What did the real Kay Francis believe? Probably nothing. The thing about her that Adela Rogers St. John had described, that inability to give much of a shit about anything, may have made her glamorous, even as late as the mid-1930s. But when you really don't care about anything, dissolute glamour itself can become a bore. And then what is there to live for? By 1934, Kay Francis was a three-time divorcee, now nearly 30, and still getting pass out drunk and having regrettable one-nighters every night that she wasn't working on a movie. And when she was working on a movie, it was usually work that she had very little creative input into, and didn't take much pride in. When she showed up on a set with both wrists bandaged, the press reported she had hurt herself trying to break into her own home so as to not wake up her sleeping maid. Could you blame Kay's co-workers for thinking she might have hurt her wrists doing something else? Something… more… intentional? and you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks, head to netsuite.com slash remember, netsuite.com slash remember, netsuite.com slash remember. Kay chased the blues with another trip to Paris, where she fell into a few more concurrent affairs, resulting in another couple of abortions. In February 1935, she came down with the flu, possibly caught from her on-again, off-again lover, Maurice Chevalier, who Kay had been nursing back to health. And yet, she still went forward with plans to throw a massive party. She had rented out a Hollywood restaurant and had it converted into a ship. Kay greeted guests wearing an admiral's uniform. Everyone who was anyone was there. Jimmy Cagney, Joan Blondell, Samuel Goldwyn. And enough of them caught the flu afterwards that the chief of the Los Angeles Health Department wrote Kay a strongly worded letter, essentially telling her to keep her cooties to herself. And she did, for a while, settling into a long-term, apparently mostly monogamous relationship with screenwriter Delmar Daves. In early 1936, Warner Brothers re-upped Kay Francis's contract, promising over $250,000 a year for a total of 40 weeks of work, an extension of servitude which the studio spun as a reward for good behavior. But the quality of Kay's movies had been slowly declining over the past three years. Her big movie of 1936 was The White Angel, in which she played Florence Nightingale. Whether she liked it or not, her metier was women's pictures. And Warner Brothers, then the studio home base of Errol Flynn and Paul Muni, wasn't that good at making them. She publicly accused the Warner Studio executives of having no grasp whatsoever of a woman's psychology. Now, Kay Francis' private life was clearly nuts, but when it came time to work, she was actually quite professional. Throughout her career, she was known for being punctual and thrifty. She had a reputation for moodiness on set, but what famous actress didn't? By the mid to late 1930s, most of Kay's on set complaints had to do with things like fittings and photo shoots both of which she had come to detest, perhaps because they took up so much of her time, but she showed up every day and did her job, recording just one unscheduled absence in the first eight years of her movie career. She felt she had lived up to her side of her contract with Warner Brothers, and the studio had failed her. So, in September 1937, Kay Francis sued Warner Brothers. She claimed the studio had dangled a role in front of her as an incentive to sign the new contract, and then given that role to Claudette Colbert. Her suit asked that her contract be cancelled, on the grounds that Warner's had improperly cast her in unsuitable roles, prevented her from taking good roles, and prevented other studios from leasing her out for better films. The legal validity of these claims seems a bit dubious. But the filing caused enough of a stink that after a few months, Warner settled with Kay, agreeing that her contract with them would end in September 1938. But while Kay was still under the studio's control, they cast her in the worst films, including something called Women Are Like That. She asked for the lead in The Sisters, but Warner Brothers gave the part to Betty Davis, as they had increasingly begun to do with just about anything that was a good part for a woman. Dark Victory was intended as a Kay Francis picture too, until the studio decided Kay didn't deserve it and gave it to Betty Davis. They were hoping that Kay would just walk away from the rest of her contract. But Kay, who had just separated from Delmar Dave's and bought a new Bachelorette pad in Coldwater Canyon, kept on cashing her checks, regardless of whether or not the studio gave her any work to do. The movies they did cast her in were so terrible that film critics started expressing pity for Kay in their reviews, blaming Warners for the sorry state of her career. Soon, WB started doing anything they could to try to get her to quit before September, so that they wouldn't have to pay out the settlement on the contract. They cast her opposite newcomers in screen tests. They refused to give her guests clearance to come visit her on the lot. The stress of the situation was starting to show physically. Kay suffered skin problems, and at the age of 33, for the first time in her life, had to start worrying about her weight. There were rumors that something else was behind Kay's troubles with the studio, that the lawsuit was merely a cover to allow the star to seem like she was in control of a bad situation that she had made herself. One of the famous lines about Kay, attributed to everyone from William Powell to Phil Silvers, is that Kay must be a good actress because she played convincing love scenes with men. Betty Davis, who had usurped Kay Francis at Warner Brothers, claimed her former rival and sometime friend was forced to leave the studio after she was caught in a sex scandal with a woman. But Kay's biographers dispute this version of events, if only because they seem to believe that Kay's lawsuit was legitimate. In any event, in May 1938, the box office poison ad was released. And regardless of why Kay Francis was in the midst of leaving Warner Brothers, the ad completely distorted what was happening with Francis. The actress, wrote Harry Brandt, is still receiving many thousands a week from mourners on an old contract, yet so poor is her draw, she is now making B-pictures. The part about Kay collecting money owed to her was true, but only because she had tried desperately to get out of that contract and Warner Brothers wouldn't let her. And she wasn't now suddenly making B-pictures. She had always made some B-pictures. There weren't a lot of movies on her resume that were longer than 75 minutes. The difference now was that Warners wasn't even trying to cast her in good movies, and in fact was deliberately casting her in bad movies to try to get her to quit. But really, they hadn't given her any good material since the two Frank Borzaghi movies she made in 1935. And that's why she had been trying so hard to get out of her contract. Being branded as box office poison may have had more of a psychological impact on Kay Francis than anything else. If you look at interviews she gave after the release of the ad, during her final months at Warner Brothers, she seems both defensive and defeatist. She insisted both that her glamorous image was overblown, that she had no beauty secrets, that she couldn't wait for her contract to run out so that she could get fat, and she frequently claimed that if her stardom had become passe, that was fine with her. Another profile of Kay began with what would become her most quoted off-camera line. Announcing that she planned to retire when her contract was finally up in September, Kay declared, I can't wait to be forgotten. She was the only actress named in the box office poison ad to appear in one of the 90-something movies lumped together in the Motion Picture's Greatest Year campaign. That movie, Secrets of an Actress, was not one of the greatest examples of anything. It was another mediocre romantic melodrama, the kind that Kay had been making for years. But it had a symbolic ending. In previous films of this sort, Kay Francis's lovers had killed themselves in order to save the object of their affection. And this one, Kay's love interest. Just let her walk away. Contrary to her threats, Kay Francis did not retire right away. First, she tried freelancing, taking offers as they came in from various studios but no one was offering material that was much better than any of the drek she had tried to turn away at Warner Brothers. She had affairs with Ruben Mamoulian, Fritz Lang, and Otto Preminger. She did radio plays, and then became heavily involved in the war effort, signing up for an extensive USO tour. In 1944, Kay Francis signed a deal to star in and produce her own movies at Monogram, a studio on what was known as Poverty Row. Producing her own movies was an unusual move for an actress at this time, and it gave Kay three things she liked. Money, independence, and breathing room from the censors. She made three films at Monogram, and one of them, Allotment Wives, is a pretty good film noir. She had always sworn that she had come to Hollywood in order to make the kind of money that could fund a comfortable life on the New York stage. Everybody says stuff like that. But Kay Francis, shockingly, made good on that promise in the 1940s, after her monogram deal ended. She triumphed as a stage actress, and worked steadily throughout the 1950s, before her health started slipping away. Drinking had taken its toll, not just on her body, but on her personal life. She'd still get regularly fall-down drunk, and one by one, her friends started to abandon her. One night she got so blasted at dinner that it took her companion and two waiters to carry her out of the restaurant to the street. As they were holding her up to wait for a cab, a sailor passed by and said out loud, Hey, hey, is that Kay Francis? Unable to stand on her own, Kay was still able to flash her old movie star smile. She said, it used to be. In the last years of her life, Kay Francis had a lung removed and then a kidney and then she got cancer. She died alone in 1968 with no family and millions of dollars in the bank, she left most of her fortune to a charity for seeing eye dogs. Was Kay Francis actually box office poison, or did Warner Brothers engineer her downfall to make room for Betty Davis? We may never know. But it's hard to imagine Kay making the transition that Joan Crawford and Katherine Hepburn and even Betty Davis made to keep working in movies and TV as older women. At her best, Kay Francis was the cinematic embodiment of youthful, live-for-today hedonism. In real life, she lived the consequence, emotionally and physically. But in movie life, she lives on, making everything, even pain and betrayal, seem decadent and divine. Here she is in Trouble in Paradise, bidding farewell to Herbert Marshall, the thief who wooed her and then robbed her. She's about to end the movie 100,000 francs poorer, and destined to sleep alone. But as Kay Francis herself well knew, sometimes a party ends on a down note. That doesn't mean the whole night wasn't a fabulous time.
3: Goodbye. It could have been marvelous. Divine. Wonderful. But tomorrow morning, if you should wake out of your dreams and hear a knock, and the door opens, and there, instead of a maid with a breakfast tray, stands a policeman with a warrant. Then you'll be glad you are alone. But it could have been glorious. Lovely. Divine. But that terrible policeman.
2: Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and edited by Karina Longworth. That's me. You can find more information about this episode and other episodes at our website, YouMustRememberThisPodcast.com. Please subscribe to us, rate and review us on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at RememberThisPod. We'll be back next week with another tale from the secrets and/or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century. Good night.